Hello and welcome back. My name is Luke and you're listening to another episode of the Next Stage podcast by Web Summit, taking you inside the minds of business and cultural leaders from around the world. It's Wednesday, and every Wednesday we're looking at some of the best and brightest minds that Web Summit has to offer. So sit back, relax, and listen in as we hear from the leading minds and industry giants from all over the planet. I'm excited to be having a conversation today about something very important to the three of us, mental health. And today we're going to add a new twist to it, psychedelics. Because psychedelics have a fascinating role to play in mental health. I have two experts here who are going to give us the skinny. Welcome Kelsey and welcome Katya. Thank you. Thank you. So let's start with a little background on each of your companies and the role that psychedelics can play through your organizations in mental health. Kelsey, would you like to begin? Yeah, sure. So MindCure is a med tech uh, mental wellness company. So we have a focus on technology enabled mental wellness. So for research, care and integration, um, we look at mental wellness kind of as a spectrum of care. So this notion that um, it can be like mental hygiene. So an everyday type of type of episode all the way through to uh, kind of the more interventionist type of situations where psychedelics can be applied really well. Excellent. And you, Katya? So Compass Pathways is a mental health care company. Um, we are developing psilocybin for uh, treatment-resistant depression and potentially other indications, but we're not a psychedelic company. Um, our agenda and our strategy um, are centered um, around patients and significant unmet need that uh, exists in psychiatry, not around particular psychedelics or uh, drugs in general. And um, as uh, we're looking, as a mental health care company, we're looking at any and um, all solutions that could help us transform mental health care. Um, and that could include uh, therapy, digital phenotyping, digital therapeutics data, and other emerging technologies. But we work closely with patient organizations, payers, regulators in in tightly regulated space. That's fantastic. Let's zoom into the psychedelics piece a little bit to help people understand what role it can play in mental health. Would you like to begin, Katya? Sure. So psychedelics, uh, as you probably know, have been enjoying a a renaissance in research and and in general um, kind of public awareness about psychedelics. Uh, But when it comes to research and specifically in psychiatry or in mental health, it's been uh, there. There has been a number of studies uh, in different indications, from depression to anxiety to uh, uh, addiction, uh, smoking cessation, and things like that. And what psychedelics offered in these studies, what they they showed. Uh, not only safety uh, signals, but also uh, a particular pattern, uh, almost immediate significant uh, decrease in symptoms uh, often the next day. And this improvement of symptoms uh, sustained for uh, weeks, months, and sometimes forever. That's great. Kelsey, what do you have to add here? Yeah, I think one of the interesting places for us as well is this idea um, of how we integrate uh, psychedelics into psychiatric practice. And so there are a couple of other things. So um, cluster headaches are are worth mentioning. I think PTSD is another material um, area of study. And, you know, for the most part, I think this idea that these, these 
medicines or drugs, as we want to call them, have been around for a, a long time. And there is a long history of study. Um, and this idea, to catch his point, of a renaissance is really promising. Uh, but I think there's also some caution around how we talk about the treatments and how we talk about the care. Um, to catch his point around, it's, it's not a it's not psychedelics of the 70s, you know, we, I want to ensure that everyone understands what we're not talking about is this idea of just uh, self-medicating or going on these wild trips. This really is a practice with deep scientific rigor with high efficacy outcomes. Um, and, the, and the great thing about where we sit in society today is we're able to screen uh, better, we're able to monitor the science better. There's a, there's a deeper understanding of what we're looking at which I think affords us a really interesting opportunity to reclassify these medicines, um, like what just recently happened in Oregon. So let's dig into how this is different than the Tim Leary 70s. What does it look like if you're going in for a psychedelic assisted therapy? Yeah, so it, it varies on the, on the medicine that's being used. We should also probably mention ketamine as an, as an operative uh, medicine that's being used. But for the most part, we talk about set and setting. So there's a rigorous screening process before anyone goes into treatment. And then generally you're arriving at a lovely place that looks much like your living room uh, with some lovely people who are gonna sit with you for the duration of your treatment. Um, and then you'll be administered the medicine. And in large part, a lot of them look like something you might Google after this, which is a person seated or lying down with a mask over their eyes, potentially listening to some music and just being supported uh, by the presence of other people. And then people will go through their experience and come out the other side and hopefully have a great integration period uh, where a lot of the work is done in, in the days and weeks that follow uh, what you witness during your session. So that's really interesting. So you're really in a psychotherapeutic context where you're sitting with somebody going through a trip or an experience with a guide or with a therapist with you. Absolutely. Very much essential to the process. Katya, can you tell us a little bit about what is actually happening in the body and the brain that allows this kind of transformation with psychedelics? Uh, yeah, sure. I, first, I just maybe... Uh, one comment, I think that Timothy Leary gets a lot of credit for uh, kind of uh, destroying the, the movement and destroying the uh, kind of the future of psychedelics. But I think, um, I don't think his contribution was that significant. I think uh, those are some of the most powerful substances that we have today and have had for centuries. So uh, I think it requires, um, you know, a certain state of society to be able to handle the substances and I think we now at this stage where we can actually we can actually handle handle that and you know the notion of set and setting from uh, from from the times of Timothy Leary and from the first time psychedelics were used at Harvard um, we just learn from these experiences and and now we're at the different stage and um, I think uh, because these experiences are so unusual it's very difficult to explain uh, what to expect, what people are going to be experiencing. Uh, then um, it, it, I think only with an invention of, oh, with advancement in newer imaging and advancement of scientific 
different scientific techniques that we started understanding how they actually work and we can show how they work. And that sort of uh, paradoxically demystifies this mystical experience. So what happens is, what we think happens is there are two uh, parts to, to uh, how psychedelics really work. One is purely psychopharmacological part when, um, you know, psilocybin, for example, works on ser uh, serotonin system in the brain and, it, you know, there are different uh, types of serotonin receptors, but it preferentially uh, um, uh, binds to uh, receptors called 5-HT2A. And these receptors are specifically considered to be responsible for this unusual psychedelic experiences. So when psilocybin attaches to these uh, uh, receptors, it triggers the whole you know, cascade of different uh, neurochemical um, uh, uh, events. Uh, so this is pharmacological uh, action of psilocybin. But what it also does is uh, these receptors um, are particularly densely expressed in a system of connections called default mode network. And default mode network is not an anatomical structure in the brain. It's, it's a system of functional connections that are formed throughout people's lives based on their you know, life experience, the life events, their learning, their environment. So essentially it's a collection of patterns, uh, co cognitive, behavioral, emotional patterns in response to environmental stimuli. And um, you, we associate this sense with, uh, uh, we associate these patterns perhaps sometimes with a sense of self or um, sense of ego. So when psilocybin binds to these receptors, it down-regulates the default mode network. And temporarily, people are lifted uh, of um, their ego. And in this um, profound psychedelic experiences, they're able to look at their life situation, their conflicts, their personal narratives from a different vantage point. And in, you know, with skillful support and in you know carefully controlled supportive environment they're able to process uh you know traumatic events memories and generate new insights and then with uh subsequent skillful integration they're able to uh, embody these insights and um, that could lead potentially to change in um helpful uh, unhelpful behavioral patterns and, um, you know, with successful integration, uh, that could be a very powerful um, outcome. This sounds incredibly powerful, but as most of us are aware in most jurisdictions, this is quite legal. Can we talk a little bit about the legal landscape, both in North America and Europe, and kind of the timeline to access to these, to these tools and techniques? Kathy, do you want to start? Start with, yeah, Can I should start it? with an, yeah, sure. Um, I'll start with something interesting that I think is newsworthy. Um, with the presidential election in the United States, with Measure 109 went through, um, which allows for psilocybin to be utilized in psychedelic-assisted therapy in the state of Oregon, which is kind of a landmark uh, moment, I think, in America. Up in Canada, we had the first four legal psilocybin treatments for terminally ill patients who were suffering from end-of-life anxiety. So in North America, it, it seems as though, you know, there's a, there's a notional shift and some interest in um, reclassification of these medicines for, for use. Throughout the Caribbean, there are locations where it's totally legal, um, Jamaica being one of them. 
Um, maybe, uh, maybe you can speak to Europe. Katya, what seems to be going on in the European landscape? Um, not as much as in the US, for sure. Uh, um, so, uh, you know, Amsterdam, of course, the, the Netherlands is a known destination for, um, for head shops. Uh, I have to say that it's not legal. Uh, there, there is a kind of general perception that psychedelics or mushrooms or uh, truffles are legal in, in the Netherlands. It's not the case. Uh, it, it, it is illegal. It's just the government has chosen not to enforce the law and preserve the option to uh, enforce uh, the, um, uh, the ban of the substances. So, um, but nevertheless, in, in, in the Netherlands, of course, there is a culture of uh, recreational retreats and uh, therapeutic retreats and head shops. Um, but um, other than that, uh, perhaps Spain and Portugal are known for their more liberal um, drug policy uh, where you know, people don't go to jail for personal possession, but offer different um, options from treatment to um, uh, you know, minor fine, which um, personally I think is, is a, a very enlightened way to go about it. Um, so what we see in the US, the uh, decriminalization, uh, not only of psychedelics, but all drugs, is super important and super uh, connected to the issue of mental health. So normally people who use or abuse drugs, they are um, likely to be self-medicating or trying to untangle some kind of psychological issues, you know, pre-existing trauma, and um, sending them to jail for, uh, for the failure of system to support them in, in any meaningful way. Uh, and then, um, you know, punishing them for the attempt to, um, you know, taking care of themselves is, is absolutely counterproductive. So I think from that perspective, the decriminalization is, is uh, long overdue. Uh, in terms of legalization and, um, and the new measure in, in Oregon, I think it's going to be a very interesting experiment. Uh, my concern is, um, uh, of course, and I think the uh, people in Oregon, you know, the group that um, advances this uh, project, I think they think deeply about the safety mm -hmm. and the training of therapists and the licensing of the facilities. Uh, my concern about that is that because there is not, uh, there is no evidence that would meet the standards of the regulators or payers, this kind of therapy will always be out of pocket, self-paid, and again, this will uh, marginalize people who are already suffering uh, and don't have resources. Great. Thank you both for giving us insight into this brave new landscape and mental health ahead of us. This has been fascinating. And for now, to everybody else, back to Portugal. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more about these topics firsthand, or you want to let us know what you want to hear, be sure to check us out on any of our social media accounts or visit websummit.com. That's websummit.com.